Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good evening. Welcome to Fun Men About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izet. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Rachel Jacobs. And we're your co-hosts through this weekly journey of all things fermented. Archived on Stitcher, iTunes, and right here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome to episode 190 in our winter season, winter-spring season of 2017. It's an insane time. And today is Charlie Papazian's birthday. Happy birthday, Charlie Papazian. Little known fact and a very fun fact. I think we say it every year. Today is also National Pie Day, not P-I as in P or P, Pi is P-I, the number 3.14, etc. Uh, basically, the story is that Charlie Papazian loves pie. He was a school teacher. And on his birthday, he'd have the kids all get his parents to make him pie and bring in pie to the school. <laughs> so it got him a lot of pie. And then it became a national holiday. Uh, and... Uh, who is Charlie Papazian? Charlie Papazian is the founder of the American Home Brewers Association and the founder of the Brewers Association and the author of The Complete Joy of Homebrewing, a, a book that we uh, staunchly advocate. And he's just a fantastic guy, fantastic friend, and he has done uh, a tremendous amount for making this world taste better. Um, so thank you, Charlie, and happy birthday. Yeah, that explains a lot about uh, I actually walked into a cafe today and they're like, ask us about pie day. <laughs> uh, so I have a little tiny pie in a jar. That's awesome. Yep, thanks to Charlie P. Yeah, thanks, Charlie. <laughs> Other things, uh, this is New York City, and a lot of stuff is coming up. New York City Beer Week is starting on on uh, February 24th, and in conjunction with that, we are throwing the first New York City Fermentation Festival, um, which we are super excited about. Uh, go to nycfermentationfestival.com. There will be about 30 vendors, exhibitors. There will be at least 13 pro brewers from the New York City Brewers Guild. There will be... Uh, at least 10 homebrew clubs from the local area. We will have seminars. We will have a kids' corner, a science corner, a kimchi making table, a kraut making table, fermentation help desks. We are super excited about it. It is very uh, low cost to come in. Samples will be abundant. And that is nycfermentationfestival.com. Um, we also have a Facebook presence and a Instagram, Twitter uh, at nycfermfest. Before that happens, Homebrew Alley 11 is happening. Uh, And go to homebrewalley.org. I think they're still accepting entries and registries. And we need your help. We need your pallets, BJCP-trained pallets. 
uh, go to homebrewrally.com to register. If you want to experience a competition and uh, see what it's like and you are not a judge, you can help us by stewarding and helping get the judges the beers they need um, by being a cellarman. Uh, and that's good preparation for the National Homebrewing Competition, which we are hosting here in New York City. You can go to the National Homebrew uh, Competition uh, website, which is part of the American Homebrewers Association, started by Charlie Papazian. Happy birthday once again. Um, the If you are a homebrewer and want to register uh, a beer to be judged in that competition, it's the largest homebrew competition in the world. Uh, registration is open from January 30th to March 5th. I mean, sorry, uh, February 5th uh, at at their website online, find that. And if you are local in New York City, uh, you can go there to register to judge and to steward. And I think that's all I got, announcement-wise. Anything else happening? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I think the New York City Fermentation Festival is a pretty big one. And uh, listeners, you should uh, listen in for the next couple of weeks. We might be uh, previewing some of the people who are going to be coming. Absolutely. And we will have a Foment About It table. That's right. A variety of speed brews. And foods. And ferments. And other demos and stuff. And just come come hang out. Come Oh, I forgot to say, we're, we're the home musicians are going to play a small little acoustic oh, yeah. set, too. We're excited about that. Um, but, you know, life is a fickle thing. But, uh, there's all sorts of, <laughs> What's that you all just sorts said? Of, all, all sorts of things are happening. And, you know, and we understand if you can't make it. And uh, if you're hard right there, uh, tell us about today, Mary, Rachel. <laughs> What's that you just said? Did you just name drop the name of our guest? <laughs> really subtly? I spelt it different. I spelt it different. <laughs> All right, so today we have Amanda Pfeiffer, who is a, or otherwise known as Amanda Fickle, who is the uh, the writer and educator of the Fickle blog, of all things fermentation, an amazing, amazing lady. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. First, uh, of, all, first how, of all, welcome. How do you Thank spell you. Fickle? What do you mean? <laughs> I spell fickle with a P-H. Uh, oh, it's, it's a multidimensional word. Uh, obviously, pickle starts with a P, and uh, I live in Philadelphia, and everything in Philly basically gets P-H if it starts with an F. <laughs> um, but then primarily, like, the word fickle for me was meaningful because I could never really stick to anything before I got on fermentation. I would get really, like obsessed with a particular topic for, you know, a month, six months, two years, and then it would be, like, not part of my life. One day I would wake up and not be interested in it anymore. Um, Gemini here. So um, fermentation has not done that to me. Fermentation has stuck with me, I think, mostly because there's so many different things under that fermentation umbrella that if I get really bored with making cheese, I can move on to making wine. And then, you know, we're in a completely different ballpark with different science and different practices and different equipment and all that stuff. Cool. How'd you get into it? Um, Oh, God. It's such a long story, but the the short version of it is I worked in big food, like big flavor industry, uh, chemical foods, and I was always the big hypocrite in the office. I was like the one eating my little organic salad and never taking samples home from the lab. Um, But... uh, I got hit by a car riding my bike in Philly. I had like a massive health crisis after my surgery. I took a whole bunch of drugs and, you know, to be able to walk and things like that that are necessary. And it really just completely destroyed my health. And really no doctors seemed to be able to give me even a hint as to what was going on or even acted like they believed me when I told them the things that were happening. So I started to do my own explorations. 
Um, I quit my job and I had wild fermentation on my shelf, you know, for a thousand years. And I'd always kind of page through it and be like, oh, this looks cool. Um, and then I Julie and Juliet it (laughs) and that kind of, you know, sparked the whole enterprise. So awesome. And then what inspired you to start writing about it? Start blogging about it? Um, I was a type A person who quit her job, <laughs> um, and I didn't realize that that was going to be such a huge challenge for me to like not have stuff to do every hour of the day until after I did it. So um, it was kind of a combination of wanting to share the stuff that I was working on with other people. I really like teaching, and um, you know, writing is a way to teach when you're writing about how to do stuff. And, um, also, yeah, just like being like legitimately so bored and really needing something to do with my time. Um, and, you know, thinking maybe this could become something (coughs) down the line, um, that was more in the line of a business that I could not feel like my soul was being sucked out as I did it. (laughs) (laughs) And then the blog, I'm assuming the blog had something to do or led to your writing a book, Ferment Your Vegetables. Is that correct? Ferment Your Vegetables. That's my book. Um, Yeah, the blog started first. um, I started writing the blog in January of 2011, and then I started telling people about the blog, I think, like, a year after that. Like, my photography was so terrible, and I had no idea what I was doing, so I just kind of, like, did it and thought, like, maybe somebody will find this at some point. Um, And then, yeah, my publisher basically contacted me. They wanted a vegetable fermentation book. I've written a lot about vegetable fermentation. And it was a project that I felt really confident that I could do a good, thorough, interesting job on because I just do so much vegetable fermentation. I've been teaching it for so long. Um, I kind of, you know, study it every in my everyday life all the time. Cool. One of the great things about the book is how approachable you make it from the very beginning of it. You start from from very from knowing nothing, and all of you have a, an FAQ or like questions in the very beginning about what could go wrong or you know, what were the things to be concerned with. And I, I think it's a really really great uh, great intro for people. Thank you very much. That's like a hundred percent my goal every time I talk to anybody, even when I'm talking to more experienced fermenters. Sometimes there are misconceptions or people just are afraid like of things that are going wrong, and I think we live in kind of a much more fearful world than we need to when it comes to our food and especially food from especially vegetable fermentation which is like just ridiculously safe right and traditional and traditional that's right so easy a caveman did probably do it (laughs) (laughs) also it's good though because i think you cover the gamut you cover for very beginners like i'm just flipping through right now and you have simplest sauerkraut but you have a lot of really good flavored additions, you know, kind of spiced and other types of sauerkraut, as well as recipes using some of the fermented foods. Like you have a kimchi mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That looks really good. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 the variations on kraut and the variations on everything in the book were really kind of my, it, it's all about like overcoming fear for me really in the end. It's like, Obviously, if you know how to make sauerkraut, you know how to make any kind of sauerkraut that yeah. you want to make. Like, that, it, there isn't that much variation. But I wanted to tempt people into trying weirder stuff mm-hmm. um, and to, like, kind of pushing the boundaries of, like, what it meant to be a sauerkraut. Um, so, you know, putting ingredients in there that you wouldn't necessarily normally expect. Like nuts. Like nuts, yeah. <laughs> I actually really like that kraut a lot. <laughs> this is the nuts for kraut, if you... If you get the book (laughs) to be fair like i like all of the recipes or they wouldn't be in the book yeah 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 yeah, obviously so one thing we met first met you actually in person um at the ferment the new york city ferment meetup Mm -hmm. and you brought a bunch of vegetable kvasses yes which is fascinating and not something that 
we see very often, at least in this country, um, and not something that we see either in the stores or even, you know, around general fermenters. It just doesn't come up that much. So let's talk a little bit. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. So first of all, let's start with what is a kvass? What are the type of kvasses that you uh, talk about in your book and you talked about with us? Sure. So um, for the purposes of my book, because it's just about vegetables, kvass is... um uh, okay, essentially it's a pickle where the ratio is inversed. So instead of having mostly vegetables with a little bit of liquid in there as brine, you have mostly brine with a little bit of vegetable in there for flavor and fermentation. Um, so you can use any vegetable as the base for your kvass, but typically um, beets are the vegetable that is the more traditional kvass um, in Eastern Europe. Um, and... I do love beet kvass. I'm of Ukrainian and Polish heritage. Like, I definitely, the first time I drank kvass, I was like, this is my stuff. <laughs> like, which is the same way I felt about, like, beet pickles. Like, honestly, I don't know if there's a genetic component to, like, <laughs> taste, but man alive. I, if, if there isn't one, I would be surprised based on my reaction to specific fermented foods. Um, but, yeah. Um, but you can do any vegetable, and I think that's a thing that's kind of been underexplored. And also because, one, I use a lot less salt in my kvass than I do in my pickles, and that's an issue for some people. Um, you don't have to worry about the vegetables being crisp at the end of the day because you're not going to eat them. Um, secondly, it's uh, not labor-intensive at all to make kvass. It's like roughly chopping vegetables and throwing them in a jar with some salt water. Like It's really almost the easiest possible thing that you could ferment. And I think it's really delicious. It's like, you know, drinking pickle brine. <laughs> like yeah. Maybe that's not everybody's cup of tea. Only not so salty. So I think you, there's, you have a lot salty. more. The thing that I was impressed at, you, I don't know how many. You brought, I think, at least five. Or yeah, there, were like, I, there were like I had 10 like or 15. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I was actually really impressed by the kind of breadth and the width, diversity. Yeah, oh, and yeah. diversity of flavor. So I think that's something that's really interesting, Kavas. The other thing is you do have a... a um, a cocktail recipe, and I think that these kind of this kvass will could make excellent non-alcoholic and alcoholic mixers. Totally so. a great mixer. Mm-hmm. I really, I really do use kvass when I make cocktails as a mixer for parties and stuff. Even people who are like ferment afraid, because my circle does include people who like you know eat Cheetos for lunch. <laughs> um, but even those people, like you know, if you trick them, <laughs> if you just like say here's some booze, they're like, "What's in this? This is amazing!" And then you're like, "Haha, it's kvass, <laughs> a weird thing that you would look at on my shelf and never ever taste." <laughs> pretty good. (laughs) Uh, So we've had actually a a bunch of people who come on the show and talk about books. um, And we've learned over that, that book writing is like a heavy process and you learn a lot along the way. So what have you learned about yourself or fermentation during the process of of writing this book? Um, There, I learned some great stuff. Um, One, I learned about the uh, present, this isn't about book writing, but it's something I learned in the process of writing the book. Uh, The Pickle Bibliography exists. The Pickle Um, Bibliography? The Pickle Bibliography is um, the USDA has purchased every study done on vegetable, on fermented pickles ever. Um, either they either they ran the study or they bought the study. Wow. So from like 1920 or something, um, those studies are uh, free and available. If you Google pickle, pickle bibliography, it's the first thing that will come up. And um, one, it's fascinating because you can see how science has changed over the past, you know, almost 100 years and how like the early studies you just 
read them because you're a person who can read. And then like the studies from like three years ago, you're like, can I get an interpreter over here? please? <laughs> like, what are, what are any of those words? Um, if you do not have a science background, which I do not. Um, so that was an amazing find for me because I really do love the science, science aspects of fermentation. And it's something that, you know, I'm not a scientist. I don't have access to all of the journals. I can't always read everything. And I really do appreciate when I have access to that knowledge, like with um, Ben Wolf's uh, Microbial Foods website. Like, it's like, thank you so much. Yes, please, please not only find this stuff, but then translate it for those of us who don't necessarily have the vocabulary for that. Um, Oh, yeah. So that's the thing that I learned doing it. But then writing the book, um, I learned that what I thought it was going to be like was not what it was like. I feel like writing a book is getting a college degree in a much shorter period of time. <laughs> like I crammed all like I really did like feel like it's an actual diploma. Like it's a thing that I have that has my name on it. That means someone else said I learned something like my publisher said this person knows things. But it's also a thing that I have that to me indicates how much I learned in like a really short period of time just like the publishing process the marketing of a book writing a book testing recipes it's it's way more intense than writing a blog which I've done for a long time and I knew it was going to be hard because I have a lot of friends who've written books but I was not expecting like I was talking to one of my friends who's a chef while I was writing it and I was like I just been pulling 120s for like months, man. I can't, I can't do it anymore. And then I'm like, oh, I'm talking to a chef. He does not care. Like, he's, <laughs> he's super unimpressed. He's like, yeah, I'm on my feet that whole time. So, yeah. sorry, you had to be sitting there in a cafe sipping coffee. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was intense. It was, it was interesting. I don't know if I want to write another book. Um, I thought I would definitely never, ever, ever write another book when I finished that. But uh, it's been out for a little over a year now, and I'm starting to get like ideas as my uh, my husband's not super excited the, about that but yeah, the I'm shock in, is, is wearing <laughs> off yeah exactly yes. yep. mary's still in the i don't want to write a book phase, yeah i'm still there and uh, I, I'm, I'm with her on that having seen her go through it i'm, I'm with your husband <laughs> so we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with more from amanda pfeiffer author of ferment your vegetables and fickle.com ferment about it Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious fresh cheese curds, or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company, the operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com. 
And as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. Welcome back to episode 190 of From Then About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are in the studio with Amanda Pfeiffer of Fickle.com, P-H-I-C-K-L-E. And uh, we're just about to talk about where were you just the last? Um. What just happened? <laughs> so we wanted to have you on at the end of last season. And we were kind of all set together. And then you were like, oh, wait, I'm going to Japan. So we're, let's, you know, we, we ended up postponing it till now. So tell us about yeah, the oh wait is like a literal thing because I, uh, yeah, I was filming a reality TV show about fermentation in Japan, just one episode of, of a greater show, not of like a season. Um, yeah, so I was in Scandinavia last year on vacation and like, this is an amazing trip. We're our big deal trip. And while I was there, I got an email that said something like, Dear Amanda from a Japanese television show. And I was like, okay, well, this is weird, Sam. <laughs> um, and I opened it, and they were like, we've read your blog. We see that you're into Japanese ferments. Like, would you like to come to Japan? And I was like, definitely a scam. And how are they going to get my money from me? I can't figure this out. Um, so I sent it to a few friends who are Japanese or have lived in Japan for a long time. And they were like, no, it's a real thing. This is an actual show that's on TV. And like... Um, yeah, you should you should do it if you want to do it. And I was like, all right. So went through this whole thing. They actually came to my house in Philly and filmed me for a couple of days. Very intense, insane days that were hilarious but exhausting. And then they left, and I had no idea if I was going to be going to Japan or not. The show's called Who Wants to Come to Japan? And <laughs> I love this. I love this. It is already an amazing story. <laughs> and basically, they bring foreigners to Japan who have like an area of interest that's really specific to something in Japanese culture. So like before me, a guy who was really into taiko drumming went, a woman who makes kimonos, a guy who was into building his own samurai armor um, people into like Japanese puppetry whatever so apparently they wanted somebody who was into Japanese fermented foods and they found me which was very lucky for me Um, so yeah they showed up on my doorstep like the day after you emailed me or two days after and they were holding like a big picture of an airplane (laughs) with some (laughs) Japanese writing on it uh, with a film crew in the morning on a Sunday morning and after I got out of my robe and put clothing on, I opened the door, uh, and they were like, "You're going to Japan!" Ah! It was like totally my clearinghouse or publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes moment, which was great. And yeah, and I was I went to Japan like ten days after that. It wasn't like I had like a lot of time to prepare. Um, and then I went and stayed with this family in the north in Niigata Prefecture, and they're a fourth generation miso making family who come from even a longer miso-making tradition than that, where the thread was kind of lost for a few generations. And, yeah, they had me come in their factory. We made koji together. It was like a five-day process, and uh, it was amazing. It was one of, easily one of the best experiences of my entire life. Like, totally crazy town. <laughs> like, I was so jet-lagged at the beginning. It was I, it really didn't feel That's like, like reality. like 12 or 13 hours, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a 14-hour 14 14 flight and, then, and a 14-hour time yeah. change. So, <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, but amazing. So how long were you in Japan? So I was in Japan for a little over two weeks, but it was only the first week that we were filming the show. Okay. I just stayed. My husband came, and we just, like, you know, visited... Awesome, awesome, amazing Japan, which I'm now obsessed with. I've never been there before, and it's like I get why everybody is a Japanophile. Like, totally get it. It's yeah. great. Have you had you made miso on this 
on this side of the world? Yes. Yeah. I, yeah, I make miso. Um, I make it in really small batches. I make it, um, you know, I'm American and I'm a fermenter. Like, I pretty much try to do the weirdest possible version of everything <laughs> that I can. And for me, I think that was part of what was really great. It was seeing this, like, deep tradition and how important it is to them. Like when I was telling them about some of the misos I make, they were like, that's not miso. Like they were like, that sounds really cool. That's not miso. Like miso is this one specific thing. And what you're doing is great, but it's not miso. Like, you know, it sounds fun, but what, it's not miso. What is the line from that thing? Would you say? I don't, do you I think, think it's so a... specific. It's, okay. it's like koji, like mostly rice koji. Like when I told them I did barley koji, which is a, like mugi miso is a thing. Barley miso is a thing. They were like, uh-huh, yeah, we've never done that. Um, and then miso, you know, it's, uh, sorry, koji, miso, If they, and they don't even add that, salt and soybeans. Like it's super specific and they've played around a little bit with the koji kin, with the culture that they use. They've played around with different humidity, different temperature, different time, but like that's it. Like you don't mess with the ingredients. Um, and like, I, I just think that's cool because I definitely am always going to mess with ingredients. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but yeah, to learn specifically like the degree to which they've perfected things. It's like, well, we used to keep it at 43.1 degrees, but we found when we moved it up to 43.2 degrees that it actually like had a sweeter taste and we like that more. So it's so specific. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So what were some of the other highlights for you? Of your trip? Um, so, well, still really, it was being with the family. Like, it was, a, like, like three generations are still living, and I stayed in their home, and they cooked me food. Japanese breakfast, oh, my gosh. I am, like, I searched for Japanese breakfast, like, everywhere in the world now. It's so good. It's so much food. Also, I don't know how people eat that much food there. They lean towards savory breakfast, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, like, fish, rice, miso soup, skemono, which are pickles, um, and then not always, not always skimono, but some kind of vegetable and then like other stuff. Like there's always like a variant, like sometimes it's eggs, sometimes it's a potato salad, but it's always like super savory and it's always a ton of food, <laughs> <laughs> which is good when you're getting up at three o'clock in the morning to go work in the factory and you're eating breakfast right. four hours later. You're like, yes, please feed me a pile of fish. Like yes. <laughs> that sounds great right now. <laughs> I love the parallel of, of this and brewing. You know, you have cultures that just have, have their long-standing tradition. You know, you have the Belgian-style ales and the German-style ales, but America is a very, very new country, and so we are, by nature, trying all... We have to be able to do that a new traditionally well, country. but yeah. Yes, a new, and yes, currently a very... Yes, it's pretty awesome. Oh, always. For, for good always reason. Rebellious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, yeah. Yeah. Always forward, never backwards. <laughs> so is this family making it uh, commercially? Yes, they're a commercial miso producer. It's Dan, Dan Siro Miso in Niigata. And I guess they're like going crazy. Cause the show aired last Thursday. And I'm I'm like, like I love these people. These are like my new family. Like I really love them. And like we're, I'm Facebook friends with the daughter. And um, according to the C translation button on Facebook, <laughs> uh, they're like going crazy with their miso sales right now. That's, so oh, that's, that's, that's really great. Good. Yeah. Where do you stand on the uh, natto uh, oh, line of, of preference? And did you have any while you were out there? I love natto. I make natto at home, and I loved eating natto in Japan. It was so much better than mine. Um, yeah, I ate it whenever I could get my 
slimy, slimy fingers on it. <laughs> They're writing songs Sometimes of not love, so impressive. But not so for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for me. Chris is not a natto lover. Not. I'm a natto lover, but I've never had it in Japan yet. So. I totally I say understand. say the nano to the natto. <laughs> also, you should have it in Japan. It's better. I, I know. I, I mean, I'll always give it a chance, but I mean, the for, for, the, for the all three times I've tried it so far, uh, it is not agreed. The thing is the proportion. That's what I learned in Japan. It's like the seasonings that they put in there, it's exa- It's like to a science, like this much mustard, this much soy sure. sauce, and like it, it doesn't resolve the texture issue for sure if that's your if that's your primary concern, no, but not really. the flavor is like perfectly balanced when you eat it there. Yeah. Did you do, uh, have you done Nukazuke? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I brought you some new. We cookie. oh, awesome! Yeah. So we have we have not yet talked about that on this show. Mm. Would you mind giving us a quick rundown of what that is? And I mean, I did take a quick class, but. Uh but we have not talked about it here. Yeah, so nukazuke are basically, anything ending in zuke is a Japanese form of pickling, and they that's one of the reasons I love Japanese ferments, is it's extraordinarily diverse the ways in which they pickle things. Some are fermented, some are not. Um, nukazuke are rice bran pickles, so basically you build a pickling bed out of rice bran and some other stuff, water, some people use beer, um, and then you kind of inoculate it with vegetables to get the lactic acid bacteria in there. And then once it's inoculated with lactic acid bacteria, you feed it vegetables that you're going to then take out and eat later. Um, so the pickles that go into the nuka bed, nuka just means rice bran in Japanese, um, you can leave them in there overnight. You can have a really quick pickle once your bed has been has been built properly so it's nice and sour um, but not too sour <laughs> there's a fine line um, or you can do really long fermented pickles in there you can leave stuff in there for a super long time but you have to stir your bed every day to keep it from getting moldy and um, it's kind of an old Japanese ferment like a lot of people don't keep nuka beds anymore but you can still get nuka pickles everywhere in Japan right and you have directions <clears throat> how to make it I do yeah there is a nuka as well as a miso doko yeah miso doko too I make miso pickles like all the time I killed my nuka when I was in Japan because you have to feed it and or daily. stir it daily. Yeah. Or, I mean... Close I'm, enough. I'm a quite the lazy fermenter, <laughs> so I don't think the Japanese people would be very impressed with the way I care for my nuka bed. But, um, but yeah, leaving it for... like I was basically gone for two months because I had other trips already like going on either side. So, no, I came... It was just like mold. I, opened, I was like, oh, there is a very interesting colony of mold there. Took some pictures and put in the compost. <laughs> so here's a kind of a perhaps a one-on-one-ish question then for, for both pickles. So in, in, in a salt brine, do you ever reuse your salt brine? I do not. And I drink it. I don't right. use it to make it, new ferments. Though. Same. same. Uh, but with a nuka bed, you're basically, it basically functioning as a salt brine and you're putting, you're putting vegetables back in, back in, back in, back in. It, is, there a, is there a life span for a nuka bed? That's a like super super good point, which you just like made a total hypocrite out of me because I'm like super I'm like never reuse your brine, but I reuse my beds all the time. So uh, the nuka bed, I have killed all of my nuka beds before anything bad has happened, like before they stopped fermenting. Partially that's because some of the nuka, some of the rice bran actually comes out with the pickles, and you can eat that or scrape it off. Um, so eventually you have to add new nuka, and you're always right. inoculating it with new bacteria every time you put your vegetables in there. Or if you're not inoculating it with those vegetables, if those are peeled, for instance, and there's not a lot of bacteria present, um, you're putting other peels and, like, scraps of vegetable in there to keep it mm-hmm. alive. Um, so I don't know. I don't 
know why that's so much better <laughs> than well, not brining. I mean, I think brine has, A, there's a little science on the brine being reused, being not great for the for the outcome of pickles. Um, they tend to get calm yeast on the surface more. They tend to be slimier in texture, less firm in texture. Um, maybe because it's not liquid in the nuka, it doesn't have the same tendencies, but... I think my nuka's get my nuka beds get good like when they get older. Mm-hmm. They get a little more funk and character in there. I like the old. Like I had one that was like three and a half years old, maybe four oh, years wow. old, and that thing was good. Three or four years old. Yeah, I wasn't. Years. I wasn't okay, traveling a lot. Awesome. In those, that was like after quitting my job, before writing the book. So I had like a span of like not going away very much. <laughs> I was able to maintain it better. So it's kind of like people and replenishing cells. You know, you're replenishing that, <laughs> that bed all the time with, with new brand. And then eventually it's, it's a new, there is none of the older stuff there, but That's the culture is there, the Every knowledge and the memory is still there. Right. It's right. a wiser nuka ready right. to go. What temperature <laughs> do you usually keep your nuka bed? Ah, Room. Room temperature. Um, uh, Nancy Hachisu. I don't know if you guys ever Japanese. Yeah. Food. Oh, yeah. Had, we had on show, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. She, I came, she comes in. New York City occasionally. Oh, so. bummer. Okay, yeah, I really I like her stuff a lot. Um, and she uh, she said something in her book that kind of impacted me. I would occasionally stick it in the fridge if I was going to be gone for a long weekend. Um, and I guess I do still do that technically. But um, yeah, she said it like her bed was very negatively impacted by being stored in the refrigerator. So I've kind of taken that to heart, and I'm more cautious on not keeping it in the fridge. Yeah, keeping it room temperature. Yeah. That's one thing we... So we haven't had full apartment heat ever until now. Um, I've 13 years, never had heat. So now we could keep our sourdough culture again and a nuka bed. I know. <laughs> we, would, we would ferment seasonally because our apartment... It would be like 50 degrees oh, the rest no. of the time. And we'd have like hot spots, so there would be certain areas that were like 90 when the heat was on and then, you know, 50 when we woke up right. in the morning or whatever. Yeah. So anyway. you don't sleep with your sourdough in the winter? <laughs> no. <laughs> we just, that's one we of my many do. nicknames, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you calling doughy? <laughs> Sour, absolutely. So let's talk about what some of your favorite ferments are. Um, oh, man. Okay, cheese, right, is a yes. no-brainer. Like, just oh, so good. I've been making a lot of cheese lately. <laughs> uh, I, um, I really like um, the book that I'm not going to remember now, uh, dude's name who makes it wild i do everything oh, wild. david asher, oh, david david asher. asher. Yeah, yeah yeah we had a model so yeah i like yeah yeah i like um i like wild fermentation in general i like that philosophy i like that thought pattern and so that book was really a lot of fun for me to dig into even though i didn't have like super success with everything like sometimes the molds were not what i had hoped for them to be even yeah. after many attempts but um i think it's a natural art of cheese making yeah right? yeah the art of natural mm-hmm. cheese making that's totally of, yep, what it is yep, yep yep he has a lot of uh, kefir cheeses yeah, yeah. and i'm a kefir cheese. like maniac like <laughs> this is the longest in my not in my life since i started fermenting that i've gone without kefir um just because i was out of town and i killed my grains and i didn't order new ones yet so oh if you need some i'm a sad know. lady I have <laughs> way too many of really them. Oh. yeah i've been keeping them in my fridge for like two months and they're oh. fine wow where'd you get them uh from cheryl passwater actually oh okay all right i'm gonna have to ask her where she got them oh yeah so I, I'm, I, I'm in the no market idea. yeah <laughs> they're pretty strong yeah so what are other so making cheese as well as eating cheese? I yeah, assume. Make, I mean, others, yes, yeah. no, infinite amounts of cheese are fine to eat in my world. Um, I I like vegetable ferments. I mean, it's the I really do 
there's really nothing I would rather eat than a nice, clean sauerkraut or just, like, a simple radish pickle. Like, I could have those every day of my life and never, ever feel like, nah, I'm not really into that anymore. <laughs> like, I I really love um, vegetable ferments. Kimchi, too. Um, kimchi and eggs, like, come on. What is a better, more delicious thing than that? Nothing, oh, yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, like, I like natto. I love miso zuke. I love, like, takwan, I think, is one of my favorite ferments. That's what I brought you uh, some of from... I got that in Kyoto in Nishiki Market, where they have the most amazing displays of pickles you will ever find in your life, I think. Um, and that's just a, a rice bran pickled daikon, but it's not exactly a nuka because you don't put it in the nuka bed. You basically... Um, like season all of the daikon you dry it you air dry it until it's kind of pliable and then you season it with rice bran and salt and you pack it all into a thing and the first time i had that was at um sander katz's uh like fermentation fervor retreat thing a few Mm -hmm. years back and i'd been wanting to make it but i hadn't gotten around to it and then he pulled one out of his basement it's a six-month pickle and Oh my gosh, me and this woman, Bethany Young, who owns a fermentation company in Boston, we ate like the entire, like a whole daikon, like a very large (laughs) daikon. Like the two of us were like, I'm just going to, it was like slicing a little bit off the edge of the cake until you're like, the cake's gone. It was like, that's what we did with the taquan. There was no more taquan. It was just the two of us. So, So and that's almost like a sauerkraut in that you're not, you know, you're not using a nuka bed, so it's kind yeah. of a variation. It's it's I, like lazy lazy nuka pickle. Yeah. <laughs> like you just set it and forget it, Pretty which cool. which is also a thing that I like. Yeah. No work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then what was the other thing you brought us? The other thing I brought you is um, just a little bit of a wild peach mellow mel I made last summer. So um, I just took a ton of honey. Um, it's an Oregon honey, and that's also from a friend of mine. Um, uh, Old Blue Raw Honey. That's the name of the company. Yeah, and I. Um, put that into one of my crocs with a ton of peaches from a local farm called Three Springs Fruit. I'm just going to plug everybody yes, here. Yes, might as well. <laughs> um, Three Springs Fruit Farm in Philly. And I put a ton of honey in there and then I vigorously stirred um, a few times a day until it was crazy bubbly and good. You didn't add any water? No water, okay. no. This is this is a super weird one. Um, I mean, peaches have a lot of water in them as right. well, but... It was, enough, it was enough that it was fermenting properly. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kind of wanted to play around with that a little bit because I think water content in, um, like, wild alcohol ferments is kind of it's like the variable right like that's the thing that you can change up so i kind of wanted to see how it would go with no water um and i i the last time i tasted it i really liked it a lot right, we're excited very, about tasting very it. sherry like very oxidized but kind of fun how old cool. is it um seven months seven months yeah right on. you give a lot of workshops i do yes. tell us about your workshops um, I, teaching is my thing. It's my favorite thing. It's what I would probably do every day, all day, if I could. Um, I teach really anything I know how to do. <laughs> I will teach a workshop on it. People hire me to come do workshops for them, or I teach my own workshops um, in Philly and around, too. That was one of the good things about the book. I got to go other places and teach. Um, and, yeah, I, like I will teach literally any topic of any ferment <laughs> that I know how to make. I'm, in the fall, I'm going to start incorporating some of the stuff that I learned in Japan. Um, so I, I'm going to be doing some koji making workshops. I've done miso in the past, but with, you know, store-bought koji or with koji that I made in large batches. And um, I'd like to be able to share the koji knowledge that I got from the Fuji family in Japan, too. Um, 
But yeah, I teach like literally everything kombucha, sourdough. I don't really teach alcohol actually. I've done some wild um, wild wine classes, but that's pretty much it in the alcohol domain. And do you have a mailing list that people can sign up for? I do. On my blog, you can sign up for it. I'm about to put the schedule up for the next five months. Cool. Um, I have my dates and my topics. I just have to get around to posting it, and that I will do tomorrow. On you might see some of us. You might see some of us sooner than later. That's right. I would love to take a koji workshop. So I've done miso once, but that's something that. I would love to learn more, especially the things that you learned in Japan. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was really exciting for me to like hear it from super experts that spend every minute thinking about koji. Yeah. Awesome. You're giving a cheese workshop anytime soon. <laughs> I don't know if I have a cheese coming in the spring, but that I don't think I do. All right. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe next time. Yeah. I'll let you know. How about that? That sounds good. So that's all going to be on fickle.com, which it's is P-H-I-C-K-L-E.com. That's right. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, Just any parting words for for introductory fermenters, you know? Uh, Thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me. This is super fun. I love you guys. You're great. The podcast is great. Um, Parting words for fermenters, like, don't be afraid. Just do it. Get out there and do it. Go to the grocery store right now. Get your salt and get a vegetable and do it. It takes very little time and you'll be so excited in two weeks. Awesome. That's and right. The book, if you are a beginning fermenter or if you are looking for some other ideas and inspiration and to get outside of your sauerkraut box, Amanda Pfeiffer's book is called Ferment Your Vegetables and is available everywhere books are sold. Everywhere books are sold, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, guys. Life's too fickle not to be making pickles. Fermenta. Ah, Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.